But I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles uh, to Psalms, the book of Psalms once again. If you don't have a Bible, the, uh, the passage for today is printed in your bulletin and there is a Bible. If you don't own one, there's a Bible in the back table, at least one. I think one of them got, got taken, which is good. Um, but there's at least one Bible that uh, is our gift to you. If you don't own a Bible, um, please take that. Over the past five weeks, we've been in the book of Psalms. We've been jumping around a bit, studying individual Psalms, letting them teach us how and what to pray. It's been primarily a series on prayer, on instruction in prayer. And I sincerely hope and pray that that series has been of some benefit to you. I know it's been of benefit to me as I've studied these passages, as I've thought about them in the context of prayer. We all need to learn and grow continually in prayer. And so I pray that there's been at least one thing for you to grab a hold of and really strive for in your prayer life with the Lord. I pray, if nothing else, that uh, possibly this mini-series in the Psalms has reminded you or rekindled in you the appreciation or an appreciation for the Psalter in general, uh, that you might return to it often on a regular basis. Uh, The Psalms are a regular part of my devotions. They never go away. I love them so much. They're truly a gift to the church. So in a sense, we, uh, we leave the subject of prayer behind today. I hope we don't leave prayer behind, but we leave the subject of prayer, at least looking at the Psalms, through that specific lens. But we're going to remain in the Psalter for the next several weeks and, and just talk about some various Psalms. We're going to explore God's hymn book, as, as the cover of your bulletin says this morning. We're not going to be necessarily grouped around one theme, but I pray and I trust that as we look at these various psalms, that uh, they all will be pushing us to greater growth in grace. There's a reality, of course, that as we look at the psalms, as we open up the book of psalms once again, regardless of whether we look through the lens of prayer, that because the psalms are the cry of one's heart, because they're not narratives, they're not epistles or letters in the same way that the writings of Paul are, They are going to be, whether we like it or not, they're going to be teaching us about prayer. They're going to be teaching us about how to approach God. And Psalm 73, where we come to this morning, is certainly no exception. Great psalm, familiar, familiar verses you'll recognize if you don't recognize the whole psalm. Listen as I read, this is God's holy word. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. 
Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and they speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocent. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Oh, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. This is the word of the Lord. Well, the story of Job has got to be one of the most infamous stories in the scriptures, you remember the account of this man. Many of you do, anyway. I won't rehash all the details of what happened to Job, but for those of you who may not be familiar with the scriptures, here was a man, an ancient man who lived long ago, a faithful follower of God, who suddenly, without warning, without cause was stricken in just about every area of his life with hardship. Of course, we see what is happening behind the scenes as Satan himself approaches the Lord, but that's not what Job sees. That's not what those around him see. He loses his family in a series of tragic deaths. He loses all his possessions. And then to top it off, he himself is physically afflicted with sores and racked with pain to the point of just wanting to die. Just wanting to give up. We read this story, and we think about this story in light of God's providence, 
And we ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, that's another sermon. So in a sense, that was an opening illustration for another sermon. No, I want to get you thinking in that direction because where we're going this morning in Psalm 73 is to a different set of circumstances that produce a different and yet related question that is asked in the crisis of faith. Namely, the question, why do good things happen to bad people? Why do good things happen to bad people? Those of you who were here last week when we looked and opened up Psalm 4, remember that one of the encouragements of Psalm chapter 4 was to trust God no matter what others do. No matter what you see happening around you, trust your God. And I brought up the fact that this can be particularly hard to do when we look around us at what others are doing, at what those who aren't following the Lord are doing, And they're succeeding. They're prospering. They're successful. They're doing just fine. And I wanted to follow that up a little bit. As I just kind of planted that last week, I wanted to follow that up a little bit this week and explore it a bit more. Look at this frustration a bit more because this was the heart cry of Asaph. This was the heart cry of Asaph. Most of the psalms we've examined up into this point have been psalms of David. We know a lot about David. We have a lot of context for his life and his experience and what he went through. We don't know a lot about Asaph. We know he was a member of the tribe of Levi. We know that David asked him to be in charge of the worship music in the tent of meeting, which is the place where they met God before the temple itself was built. And so you might say that Asaph was an ancient worship leader, song, singer, songwriter type of guy. It's probably the easiest way for us to think about who Asaph was. He was a gifted man, a gifted man of God. He was a prolific writer, and the next ten psalms in the Psalter, from 73 on, are Asaph's compositions. They're his contributions to the worship of God's people throughout the ages. And one of Asaph's gifts, by God's grace and by the working of the Holy Spirit, and this is the reason why we, we praise and love modern singer-songwriter type folks, is because Asaph had a gift of sharing his struggles and being honest about them and sharing them in a way that we could grab a hold of that we could relate to. And so this morning, Asaph shares his struggles, and he lays out for us a path for those of us who have ever felt his frustration. Maybe you're here this morning. You've been through some difficult things in your life, and you look around you at the prosperity of those who don't care about doing the right thing, And you yourself are frustrated this morning. 
Well, there are two truths that I want us to think about as we walk through Psalm 73, as we hit some of the highlights and the major themes of Psalm 73. And the first truth is this. Don't let wickedness deceive you. Don't let wickedness deceive you. As you know, our modern news programming is a frustrating tale of contrast. At least I find it to be a frustrating tale of contrast. I think many of you do. Many of you probably avoid the news for this very reason. You watch a story on the horrifying reality of of hundreds of children dying daily because of the famine in Somalia. And 15 seconds later, it's followed up with a news story about a flamboyant, foul-mouthed, womanizing actor who has just been re-signed to some multi-million dollar contract. Then we think about our own lives, and we think about our own striving to be honest, hard-working people, faithful to God, providing adequately for our families. And we hear about criminals, convicted criminals, selling their stories for thousands of dollars, even millions of dollars. And we're tempted to cry out, God, it's just not fair. It's just not fair. And this was, this was Asaph's cry in Psalm 73. God, it's just not fair. And it begins as he just looks at the world around him. And that's where our psalm begins as we walk through these first, I don't know, 12 verses or so. We see what he sees, the reality that he sees. What it looks like, what it looks like is the reality of the world that he and we live in. Follow along with me in verses 4 and 5. In verses 4 and 5, he asks, How could those who care less about you, God, how could they be so healthy, so well-fed, so strong, so, so at ease? They don't have stress like the rest of us do. They, they seemingly go to their graves with a smile on their faces. And then in verses 6 through 9, he says on top of that, Man, they're so arrogant. They just love their foolishness. And yet they're full. They laugh at those around them. They shake their fists in defiance, not just at those around them, but at you yourself, God. And then we see in verses 10 and 11, Asaph cries out, How can they be allowed? God, how can they be allowed to lead people astray? with their attitudes, with their actions, with their popularity? How can they be allowed to scoff at you and say, oh, how will God find us out? How will God stop us and our ways? You see, all these questions, all these frustrations that Asaph has as he looks at the world around him, they culminate in verse 12 where he says, behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease. They increase 
in riches. Do you ever see circumstances that lead you to the same kind of conclusion? Do you ever get frustrated with the way the world looks, the way the world seems? Asaph certainly did. You see, in these first 15 verses, he's not just merely stating the facts. He's expressing his feelings, his frustration, his doubt. We might say that one word is at the center of Asaph's cry. It's the word doubt. Verse 2 says he had almost stumbled and slipped. He almost, his envy and what he saw, almost caused him to just walk away. To just give up. I've lost hope. And then in verse 13, All in vain have I kept my heart clean. It seems that the apparent, the, the, the apparent injustice around him just doesn't matter to God. I must be on the wrong path. I need to get on that path. That seems like the path to success. They say that crime doesn't pay, but Asaph says, oh, it sure seems it does. So what's the use? Why even try? Here I am working hard to do what's right. I'm not reaping any of the rewards. The rewards are, are going to those who don't care. Those who either ignore you or are in defiance of you. You see, Asaph is he's being tempted to, to be deceived by the wickedness around him. Well, let me stop for a moment, as I did last week, and just see what's going on here in Psalm 73 and recognize and learn from what Asaph is doing and what he may be teaching about his words here. Number one. Asaph is a believer. He is a follower of God. He is a worker in the house of God who is struggling with doubt. He's struggling with big questions. How does God's goodness, how does God's justice, how does God's sovereignty intersect with what I see around me? How does that work? That's a big question, God. I think sometimes we as believers are embarrassed that we would ever struggle with such things, that we would ever struggle with such questions. We try to handle the feelings on our own, or we try to suppress them and just deny that they're really there. You see, Asaph, in a sense, he gives us permission to wrestle with questions. You don't always have to have that rock-solid faith. You don't always have to put on that, that mask when you come into this house. No, come with your doubts. Come with your stresses. Come with your anxieties. And let God's Word speak to them. You see, Asaph, in a sense, gives us permission to wrestle. But he does tell us, he does help us wrestle with things appropriately. We don't just have a blank check. This is God we're talking about. 
So he tells us how to wrestle appropriately with our doubts. And that brings up the second thing I just want to observe under this first point. And under Asaph's words, yes, he is being upfront about his feelings, about his doubts. But with whom is he being upfront? With whom? He's being upfront with God. You see, he is praying his feelings. He's not denying that they're there. He's not trying to suppress them in embarrassment, nor is he letting those feelings, listen closely, nor is he letting those feelings define him and define who he is. Rather, he goes to God. To bring in last week, he runs to God in his trouble. He goes to God in prayer. And then thirdly, the last thing we can recognize about Asaph here and what he does is that Asaph recognizes that to broadcast this frustration and doubt, to air this out before the world, is really not appropriate. It's not helpful. It's not helpful particularly to those around him. And so he writes in verse 15, If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the children of your generation. I sin every Sunday morning. But I don't start every Sunday morning confessing my sin in public to you. That's not helpful. It's not appropriate. And Asaph, as a leader in God's house, knows the tenderness of others and says, I'm going to keep it in its proper context. I'm going to be honest. I'm going to pray. I'm going to cry out to God. But I'm going to keep it in its proper context. Those three things, I think, are so helpful for us when we think about our own doubts. And so here we see, as in many other psalms, as in so many other psalms, in contrast to so many other psalms, that Asaph is not being pursued by enemies. He does not need victory over his adversaries. He's not racked with pain. Therefore, he doesn't need healing. No, Asaph is having a crisis of faith. He's having a crisis of faith. He needs to not let wickedness deceive him. He needs to be reminded that the success of the wicked is not really success. That life only appears to be unfair. And that brings us to the second truth that I want to flesh out this morning. The second truth which builds on the first, and it's this. In the midst of doubt, you need to refocus your heart. We can say this in a very, uh, a number of various ways. In the midst of doubt, you need to let God refocus your heart. We acknowledge that it's God that's got to do this heart work. But in the midst of doubt, you need to refocus your heart. You see, Asaph gives us a cure for this state that he's in. And we find ourselves in sometimes. And it involves a paradigm shift. It involves not a change in circumstances, but a change in perspective. You see, one trap of the world 
that we surely don't want to fall into as we read Psalm 73, as we read Asaph's frustration with the world around him, is that a reversal of the fortunes of the righteous with the unrighteous, that would make God just. We don't want to fall into that trap. That's not what Asaph is saying, and that's not what he needs. Just imagine that suddenly missionaries, suddenly the Mortons are getting $4 million signing bonuses to go back to Malawi. And our major league rookies are suddenly making minimum wage. Sure, that'd be a lot of fun. There's no doubt that would seem fair. That would seem right. That would seem appropriate. But that's not the cure. That's not the cure. Even though some, more than we'd like to think about, even though some peddle that very message, that a reversal of fortune in this life is all that we need. The cure is to get your heart in the right place. That's the cure, Asaph says. And you ask how? Well, he tells us. He tells us right here. And he tells us how to refocus our hearts by three things. The first thing is is pray. Of course, you knew I was going to say this. We've got to pray. We recognize that we're creatures, that he's the creator. So we don't let our feelings define us, but we let the truth of who God is, whatever shaky ground that might be on in our minds because of our doubts, we must let that truth be the foundation and the catalyst to move us to God. See, isn't it interesting that Asaph begins with the declaration, truly God is good. Truly God is good to Israel. He knows this truth. He believes this truth. Even though what he's about to say and what he's about to observe seems to question and undermine that truth, he knows where he must go. He must pray. That's the first thing. The second thing that Asaph tells us in in terms of how to refocus our hearts, and this is really the thrust of the cure, The second thing he tells us to do is go to the house of God. Go to the house of God. Verses 16 and 17. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. You see, all these thoughts about the world, all this observation and all this data gathering brings Asaph to this point of confusion. He doesn't know how to sort it all out. He doesn't know how to make sense of it until he goes to worship. Is this a shameless plug by your pastor to get you to come to church every week without fail? No. This is the truth of God's Word. This is the truth of the way He's made us. This is the truth of the gift of the church, of the assembly of the saints in corporate worship. 
It's God's ordained means to keep your life in perspective. What happens here? What happens here this morning? What happens here is you experience God. You experience God. Now, we reform folks sometimes don't like to use that word experience. We don't like to talk about experience as if it's all about our feelings, anti-intellectual. I'm not saying that. There was a great point that I heard from another pastor this week. He said that Asaph shows us that our doubts, our questions, don't come simply through thinking. Just sitting and thinking about stuff. Oh, you might have read something that unsettled you. You might have read a rational argument that was particularly compelling to you. But there were other things in your life. There were friends around you. There were tragedies. There were circumstances. There were experiences that led you to the place of doubt. And so by God's design, what you need to counteract that doubt is not mere intellectual argument. You need the experience of worship. You need to sing. You need to hear other people sing. You need to touch. You need to touch the bread. You need to hug somebody's neck. You need to taste the wine. You need... This sensory experience of God's house, of His sanctuary, to let God refocus you. I'm not saying, I'm not saying that we are void of intellectual engagement. I hope not. The center of our worship is the Word of God, which always engages our minds as well as our hearts. God's truth, God's promises, it becomes the primary refocuser of our hearts. What exactly does God's Word do when we come to the house of God? What does it accomplish? Well, Asaph goes on and he reminds us that here in this place, you Remember, you are reminded that your future is better. That your future is better. Because of the gospel, because of Jesus Christ's work on your behalf, there is no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. When you stand before the Lord, You stand in Christ. What awaits you is a place that's being prepared by Jesus Himself. He told His disciples, If I go, I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many rooms. Not so for the wicked. They stand condemned in their sin. Their end is destruction and terrible punishment. Verse 19 says how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. 
And in contrast to verse 24, the children of God, the promise to them is that you guide me with your counsel and afterward you receive me to glory. Oh, this is the call of the gospel once again. If you are here this morning and you do not know the Lord Jesus, you don't have a good future. You don't have a future. God's word reminds us this morning that your future is condemnation. Your future is wrath unless you run to the Lord Jesus. Your only hope. The only one who can make you a child and he invites you to come. To come to him this morning. You see, Asaph likely, he knew these things. He knew these things intellectually. But he needed the sanctuary. He needed the experience of God's house to bring it home to his heart once again. Here you remember that your future is better. But it's not all about your future. Because here you remember also that your treasure is better. Here you remember also that your treasure is better. Yes, we have an eternal treasure that awaits us, one that can't be stolen, one that will never rust, that will never burn. We have heaven itself, the absence of sin, the absence of pain, the absence of sorrow. That's what awaits us, saints of God. And yet Asaph doesn't focus on the jewels in his crown or the timelessness of his existence in heaven. What does he focus on? He focuses on God himself. You see, heaven isn't heaven if God isn't there. And this is where our hearts need to be prodded this morning. Verses 25 and 26. Such great verses. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. My portion forever. Can we say that this morning? Can we say that this morning? There was a little tiny book written a few years back. I bought it, read it. Great little book. But I love the title the best. The title of the book, some of you may have heard of it. It says, the title is, Lord, you are the treasure that I seek. But there's a lot of cool stuff out there. You are the treasure that I seek, but there's a lot of cool stuff out there. Do you feel that in your heart? Do you feel that tension of making God your treasure? Amidst all the stuff of earth. Asaph got there. David got there. Psalm 63, another familiar psalm. David cries out, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I've looked on your sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. My soul will be satisfied as with rich and fat food. 
I read that and then I read a sermon on that passage, not on Psalm 73, but on Psalm 63, which maybe I'll preach someday. But there were some comments that were particularly wonderful and challenging to my heart. Speaking of David's words, David's heart, which really reflects Asaph's heart. The writer says, even though worship does involve expressions of thankfulness to God for his gifts, this is not the essence of true worship. In fact, there is a gratitude to God for his gifts that has no true worship in it at all. In other words, there are people who love their health and family and job and hobbies and thank God for them often, but they don't love God. They don't savor God. And when God is not savored for the sweetness and excellence of who He is, then He is not worshipped. He is not worshipped. You see, David wanted God more than he wanted life. And if you want God more than you want life, then you want God more than you want all the joys in this life. Family, health, food, friendship, sexual relations, job satisfaction, productivity, books, skateboards, computers, homes, music, sunsets, fall colors. What David says that the love, when David says that the love of God is better than life and therefore better than all the beauty this life means, he is not denying that these good things come from God. He is warning us, rather, that if our hearts settle, even gratefully, on the beauty of the gift, and do not yearn for the infinitely greater beauty of the giver, then we are not worshipers. We are idolaters. Wow. What a great passage. Worship reminds us of the good things that come from God. In Christ we have peace, we have joy, we have hope. Hope of eternal life, hope of glory, but worship also reminds us of the infinite beauty and glory of God. Of God Himself. A God that we can gaze upon, a God that we can worship because of Jesus. Because of the one who condescended to us, that we might come through him. The writer of the Hebrews spoke of Jesus as the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Your treasure is better. Your treasure is better. The wicked may have toys, they may have wealth, they may have health, but you have Christ. I know that I need grace to keep this before me. I know that I need grace to look past the good gift to the giver of that gift. There's a prayer that hangs on my bulletin board above my desk. It's there all the time. But I happened to look up of it as I was thinking about this passage this week. As I was studying it, and it just seemed so appropriate. It's a a prayer of A.W. Tozer. Some of you recognize that name. He prays, O God, I have tasted thy goodness, and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I am painfully conscious of my need for further grace. I am ashamed of my lack of desire. 
O God, the triune God, I want to want Thee. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. Show me Thy glory, I pray Thee, so that I may know Thee indeed. Begin in mercy a new work of love within me. Say to my soul, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Then give me grace to rise and follow Thee up from this misty lowland where I have wandered for so long. That's my prayer. That's my prayer for all of us this morning. One last thing. In the darkness of our circumstances, we need to be reminded that He's here. That God is there. And that's the final image that Asaph leads us with. Refocusing our heart begins with prayer. It continues at the house of God. And in a sense, it concludes as we reach up, as we reach up and feel for His hand. I love it. And I know... Every parent in this room loves it. When you're in a certain situation, scary, busy, crowded, and all of a sudden you you feel little fingers grab your hand. Little fingers grab your hand. And you grab a hold tight, reassuring them that, yes, you're here. You're with them. You're not going to leave. You're not going to let anything happen to them. And Asaph comes to that point in verse 23, reaches up with the hand of his heart, so to speak, and reminds himself that God is there. He has always been there. In the blessings of ease and the difficulty of dark providence, he is always there. He's never left. Never once. Never once. We started this this uh, service with a Matt Redman song. I've been listening to the new Matt Redman CD. Great CD. I get nothing if you buy it, but go buy it. And he has a song that's been rattling in my head called Never Once. Never once did we walk along alone. Never once did you leave us on our own. You are faithful. God, you are faithful. Carried by your constant grace, held within your perfect peace. Never once. No, we never walk alone. In the midst of your doubts this morning, whatever they may be, my prayer is that you allow God and His grace to refocus your hearts as you come into His house, as you hear His Word, as you make Him your treasure, and as you feel for His hand and rem- and are reminded that He is there. He's always been there and will always be. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank You for Your Word this morning. How we need these truths to pierce to our hearts, to the very marrow of our bones. And so, Father, we pray that we in the midst of a world that's broken, in the midst of a world that's messed up, that we wouldn't strive for, that we wouldn't long for the same things that the world longs for, but we would recognize what it is that we have. 
the treasure that is ours in Christ. Father, make it so, we pray. We need your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.